Episode 13 features Fred Duncan, who owns a private training facility in New York. He works with athletes of all levels in many different sports, as well as does speaking engagements and seminars around the country. We dove into his practical approach to training athletes, including topics surrounding different energy demands of different sports, how that should dictate programming and exercise selection, as well as he views speed development. This episode is available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So welcome back to the podcast. We're excited to bring on Coach Fred Duncan. Um, Coach, thanks for taking the time to, to come on and talk shop with us. Can you give us just a brief description of kind of what your current role is and what you do on a day-to-day basis? Um, yeah, so I own a sport performance facility, and uh, I work mainly with athletes in a lot of small groups, um, high school, college, pro. I also do a little bit of training here and there. Uh, and then I also do a lot of online work, and I teach seminars to coaches and therapists and physios who uh, are looking for a better understanding about how to implement strength training, uh, how to implement speed training in their programs, or, uh, you know, people who are just trying to learn a different approach that isn't sold to you in a standard certification. I noticed that you do those speaking engagements. How did that get started and how did you start to do uh, things like that? Um, it's funny because there was a Craig, uh, Dr. Craig Levinson came to Buffalo and he was having a seminar here. Uh, somebody reached out to me and said that I should go and that, um, you know, to meet him and, and that him and I would get along well. Uh, I, I tend not to really like seminars for the most part. Um, I decided to go just because I had read a lot of Craig's work in the past and I was like, you know, it would be cool to meet him and kind of talk shop a little bit. But it, it, his courses, you know, definitely there's a lot of PTs and Kairos, and I don't always kind of align with their beliefs. So anyway, I went, and uh, within the first couple of minutes, he had asked the people there if they knew who Greg Lehman was and if we had an understanding of the biopsychosocial model of pain, and if we did, to raise our hand. So there was probably like 80 people there, and three people raised their hand, and I was one of them. And, and Craig was like, all right, why don't you come up here and tell us about it? Um, from there, I, you know, I spoke a lot that weekend. Um, he had me come and speak to a lot of different groups in New York City and a couple other um, places that he was holding seminars. And then people started to reach out to me just to come to their gym, come to their facility, and uh, kind of break off from that and do my own thing. So that, that's how it got started. Cool. I, I really resonate with kind of just your approach on social media because um, you're just really direct and I appreciate that. And, and I like that, um, which which is good, I think. Um, and so let's get into that because I've been uh, following you now for a, a little bit and that's how I kind of know who you are. Um, and so I wanted you to touch quickly first on just the energy demands of team sports, because you talk about that often. Um, and, and how do you think that should dictate training programming and or sport practice itself? Yeah, so I mean, I think a lot of times when people think about training a sport, like and I tell people all the time, first off, if it's a young athlete, they need a minimum of three years of GPP or general physical preparation. So we don't even need to talk about specifics and energy system and all this shit that parents and coaches want to talk about. It's like build a foundation, build a base. That's going to raise all future motor skill potential and acquisition. If that's not there, we don't even need to go into more advanced methods. Um, When I look at a sport, right, obviously, number one, I'm looking at the individual. Number two, I'm looking at the bioenergetic demands of the sport, the biodynamics of the sport, and then the biomotor abilities that that athlete is going to utilize to be able to perform well in their sport. From an energy system demand, most sports are living in that alactic realm. So zero to six seconds, zero to 10, you might see it in different, uh, different research, different ways. And then in a, a strong aerobic backdrop. And so, you know, obviously all of the energy systems are always working. So they're not interdependent. And, and I'm not trying to tell people that, you know, when we're training one, we're specifically only training one. But if we know that the majority of sports are alactic and aerobic, it would make sense that when we train them, 
we obviously want to train in the alactic environment, and as Charlie Francis said, expand the alactic envelope, and we want to develop the aerobic system, and we don't need to spend too much time in that lactic realm because I believe that the majority of athletes and coaches and practices are kind of living in that zone. Um, right. And then to have testing that is, you know, for example, like a 300-yard shuttle for soccer or baseball um, or football, that is not the realm of how the game is played. Football, the average play is about five to six seconds, and then they have 25, 30, 35-plus second break, right? So it's we have short, high-intense effort. That's the alactic system. And then the aerobic system is going to help fill in those gaps in between during that 25, 30, 35 second recovery. And then we go again. Um, using a test like the 300 yard shuttle doesn't really accurately depict how that athlete is going to be able to perform in a sport that is based on high intense efforts followed by rest and recovery. Um, the, the other thing about it is, is that nobody is running a 300 yard shuttle very fast, um, especially team and field sport athletes. So what you end up seeing is you just see a lot of really ugly reps, low force, low velocity running. Um, and I often joke that it tells me who the best is at slow running. It doesn't tell me much other than that. So, um, you know, that's, that would be my, my thought process on energy system for most, because most field and team sports kind of exist in that realm. Most of these tests, um, I do agree with you, are, are somewhat archaic. They've been around for 20, 30 years. They were always the same test. Um, a lot of my athletes I work with is the same, you know, test. In the soccer realm, it's 300-yard shuttle, the beep test. Um, there's a list of them. Um, I guess the question is, why do you think they are still so prevalent? And the way I look at it is trying to find solutions to the problem, in a sense. And so how, how do you get – the message that you get out is I 100% agree with you. And so it's, it's how, do we, how do you actually get those – to be actually within these systems because, you know, the, the thing I get from athletes a lot is I explain to them, I'm never going to have you run a beep test. The way we train will prepare you for the beep test. You'll do fine at the beep test. Don't worry about it. Um, but they are so worried about the beep test. They just want to run it all the time. And it's, you know, it's, it's a weird balance, but it's how, how do you get it to the next level where the beep test is just gone or the 300 yard shuttle is just gone and we're actually testing something that's valuable to the you know, team or coach. Well, I think the easy answer why it's still there is because people are just fucking lazy and they just do what they've always done. And a lot of sport coaches, you know, try to wear two hats and it's like, you only have one ass, you can't ride two horses with it. So when my, when your athletes come to me, I don't teach them how to play soccer. I don't teach them how to play football, right? Because that's your job. And this is my job. Um, I had an interesting discussion with a soccer coach of a, top five women's program in the country about the beep test. And essentially I asked him, I wanted all the beep test scores and I wanted all of the players max velocity, um, their highest, highest sprint times. And I, I, I forget the exact number, but I believe four out of, and then I asked him subjectively who the five best players were. Four out of the five best players from, from his belief did not hit the number that they wanted on the beep test. Um, three or four out of those did have were in the top five in terms of highest miles per hour in terms of their sprint. You know, they use GPS testing. Um, and the only reason that I was asking him is it just kind of reaffirmed my own belief. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, people misconstrue soccer as an endurance sport. And it's like, yes, there is a large endurance component, but I would also consider it a speed and power sport. And uh, those abilities have to be present for an athlete to compete at the high levels. How do we get rid of it? I think, you know, I don't, I don't know if the current, um, the current landscape of coaches are going to change their mind much on this. I think if, if enough coaches kind of talk about it now, maybe like the next round of sport coaches coming in will adopt different testing. Um, but, but my other issue with it is that, like you said, athletes spend time trying to pass the test or train the test. So rather than working on the abilities that they need to be a great player, they're just running the beep test all summer long. 
And uh, I feel like it, it wastes valuable time for an athlete because we only get so much time and we only have um, so much energy that we can expend per week on training and practice. And, and so to just keep doing the beat tests over and over is insanity. Uh, I'll, I'll keep, you know, kind of trying to fight against some of these tests, but I think really we need a new generation of coaches that are more willing to accept new methods and kind of uh, let go of the old ones. I think it goes even to the, you know, the strength coaches and performance coaches, because I think some of these sport coaches have held their position for a long time and they're, you know, respect, respect, respectable. And I think they're sometimes the ones that are kind of pushing that testing, like, Hey, I want to see the numbers. I want to see how fit my team is, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I think some sport coach or uh, performance coaches may be scared. I don't know if that's the right term to stand up to a sports coach and say, Hey, I'm not doing the beep test anymore. Um, whether that's because their job's on the line or not. Um, but I, I have, you know, I've had those same conversations that you've had, and most of the conversations I have had have gone somewhere at least. You know, it, maybe it's we're not doing – maybe it's we're only doing the beep test now and we're not doing all these other five tests that are, you know – because the thing is in college, a lot of these girls do four tests in the manner of like 24 hours. And it's like you're, now you're really not testing anything at all. It's just, you know, zero. So I, I was super curious about that and what you know, your thoughts are. It completely makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I like to take the stance in, in the book, um, The Black Swan by Nassim Tlaib. He talks a lot about how um, knowledge is really fragile. And so you have to be prepared to change your mind, change it often, be willing to understand that things you learn may be wrong. And, um, you know, it's that's difficult to do. Like even, you know, I work in the private sector, obviously, and so – Sometimes I think it's really easy for people that work in the private sector, and this would be the same for a coach of a good program. Um, sometimes we can become legends in our own mind because we're in control of everything. And, you know, let's be honest, people train, they get better, right? You could do some really stupid shit, and a lot of people are still going to improve. If you have young athletes, them literally just going through puberty, they're going to improve. Um, and so it's easy to kind of rest on your laurels a little bit and just think that everything that you're doing is great and that you know what's going on. So I, I try to kind of like check myself as frequently as I can. Um, and the same thing, like if you're, a, if you're a coach at a high level program and you get the best athletes in the country year after year, you're going to win a lot of games. And you could be doing stuff that's outdated, that's incorrect, that, that we don't agree with. But at the end of the day, if you keep winning, we're going to have a hard time stepping in and saying, hey, you probably shouldn't do that anymore. Um, that is, unless we got enough people to understand that we have to be willing to change our mind. And, and he talks about, you know, a, a long, long time ago when people thought that there were only white swans. And as soon as the first person saw a black swan, it invalidated thousands of years of what they believed to be true with one simple observation. And he goes on to describe, obviously, what a black swan event is and this, this, and that. But, um, you know, for me, I just thought that, that 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 was really, like, that was really telling. That knowledge is very, very fragile, and ideas tend to be very sticky. And so once people have an idea in their head, they don't want to let go of it. So I've tried to make an effort to not be one of those people. I've tried to make an effort to be somebody who – I love talking to somebody that has a different point of view. Than, than I do. Um, I recently was talking to a, a sprint coach at Altus and, you know, I was questioning some of my own methods to him and, and through our conversation, it definitely made me soften or change my stance a little bit on stuff that I'm doing. And I'm totally okay with doing that. Yeah. And you have to be it. No one, no one has all the knowledge and no one has the expertise um, at all. I mean, that goes against the scientific method anyway. Um, and, and just based on, like you said, being willing to change your stance, I think is important and necessary. And if you're not, then, then I think there's a big issue with that, obviously. Um, touch on this a little bit. I saw you've talked about kind of one of your favorite quotes from Charlie Francis, um, which is, if you have a team full of players that can't touch the rim, it doesn't matter how many times they can't touch it. Expound on this a little bit, uh, if you can, and how that should inform training. Yeah, so I love Charlie Francis. He's a huge influence in, in my career. Um, 
I, I think that that quote, a lot of people don't seem to just not understand it. Uh, I think it's pretty simple. Basically, he's just saying that if you don't have high levels of speed or power or whatever, then your endurance is not going to be able to save you because you aren't going to be able to compete with high level athletes who also have endurance. Like the, the, if we look at every single sport, there is an inherent ability to be able to accelerate your limbs or your body or an object through time and space. It is often a major differentiator between great athletes, just like speed is. Um, and so that has to be there in order for you to play at a high level. Um, now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be in shape. And like I said in the video, I'm like, you know, nobody says endurance kills. And then people are like, well, you still have to train endurance. And I'm like, yes, of course you do. I'm just saying that you could have all the endurance in the world, but if you can't keep up with the high level athletes, then the endurance is not going to be able to get you on the field or get you on the court. And so Charlie was very big on making sure that your high intense effort stayed high so that you were training true alactic speed and that you were training aerobic development with tempo runs. He did not believe in that 76 to 94%. Now there would be really good coaches that would say he maybe took that too far and that there is a role for some of that running. I think that that's a, that's a reasonable stance to take and it's a discussion that you could have, but I think at the end of the day, especially when we consider the best athletes that we work with, um, they have speed, they have power, they have strength, and they have, they have the endurance and the skills. And so um, I just want athletes to be able to focus on the things that are going to give them the highest possible returns. And in my opinion, that is going to be developing proper speed and power through true acceleration and max velocity work. And working in the private sector, as all three of us do, I have a lot of conversations with parents and athletes, and they do not understand this. Um, it, true speed development and or strength development, and, and my, my argument is always to them, you're already getting a lot of that endurance slash aerobic capacity at practice because the sport coach thinks that's the most important, and they don't know how to develop speed. True speed work, true acceleration development, and then obviously strength development. So my argument is, look, when you come to me, we don't need to continue to fill that bucket. Let's actually get true speed and acceleration work. And so getting parents and athletes to understand that, I think, is a big first step in their true development, um, in high school especially. Um, so touch on that a little bit because I have those conversations all the time. Is that, some, is that like a battle that you fight a lot? I don't, I don't do too many battles with parents and athletes anymore. Uh, <laughs> it, it like – you're either going to train here or you're not. I really don't care if you choose not to. Um, I don't go into the parent's job and tell them what to do or how to do it. So they're not allowed in my facility when their kids are training. And uh, I'm not here. I don't really do sales. So um, I'm not here to try to sell it to them. When people train, I'm going to be describing what and why we're doing it to them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's like uh, – I'm not here to have conversations with them about this. This is my job. You're hiring me to do it. If, if you want to have an input or if you want to do it, you're more than welcome to do it and you guys can go somewhere else. So that's not something that, that I have to worry about too often. I, mean, I, I just, I just listened to uh, Mike Boyle talk to uh, basketball, some, another podcast, and he said basically the exact same thing. He said, I have parents all the time that come in and, you know, after the first week or so, they'll come in and try to talk to me about something. And he's like, his response always is, you came to me because I'm that guy is what you told me. And now if you don't want me to be that guy, then you could just go train somewhere else. Like you came to me for a reason. And if not, then, you know, it's I'm not going to try to convince you to stay here. We have we have the, you know, plethora of success that's come out of Mike Boyle's system. And he's like, I'm not here to try to kind of sell you on what we do. If you want me to be that guy, then let me be that guy for your kid. Um, that's exactly, I just listened to that the other day and that was basically exactly what you just said. <laughs> yeah. I mean, him and I don't see eye to eye on a lot, but we agree there. <laughs>
So talk to me a little bit about why you're so critical of things like crawling and Turkish get-ups and things like that. I mean, I personally have always been skeptical, uh, but there are certain coaches who, you know, I have a lot of respect for who use them. Um, so g- give us your thoughts kind of on that and the why behind it. I, my, my, see, my biggest issue, and like a I, 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 long time ago, it's like I stopped trying to argue with people about exercise selection because in the training of an athlete, it doesn't matter. These are all general tools. They're not going to do any of it on the field. So it, it's outdated for us to sit around and be like, well, why should they barbell squat or why should they front squat or should they Olympic lift or should they med ball throw? Um, that doesn't get us or the athlete any closer to where they're trying to be. Um, yeah, I agree. Again, you, we, ha- we have to understand that, that what we do in the gym is never going to replicate what's occurring on the field or on the court. I do have an issue with kind of with fads and with people, you know, just doing things because other people are doing it or because it seems to be kind of like a hot topic right now. Um, I was never a fan of the FMS that came and went Um, every three letter course comes and goes and um, crawling, you know, the, the weirdest thing to me about crawling, it's like, look, if you want to crawl with your athletes, and they're getting better and you're getting them closer to their goal, I don't give a shit. That's fine. Um, but it's when you try to pretend that it's doing something that it isn't doing or that it's absolutely necessary or that you can't have good movement without it. Or my favorite, um, well, well, babies do it. And it's like, well, why the hell are we using the, a baby for a standard of movement of an elite athlete? I don't quite understand that. Um, so it's just one of those like hokey things where the internet gets really interested in one exercise, one topic, one certification, they hyper fixate on it. And I just like to point out to them that the majority of them are fads that they don't often do what they claim to do. And to just remember that the basics are the basics for a reason. And that's because they work. So you don't have to go and try and reinvent yourself and reinvent exercises because let's be honest, None of us are doing anything different than, than what was done 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. I mean, let's just be honest. No plyometric method, no contrast training, no complex training, no dynamic effort. All of these things have been around for ages. Coaches have been doing them. And so in terms of innovation, like, what are we really talking about? Yeah, we have more data and tech right now. But outside of that, training modalities and training methods, there's nothing new. I hate to break it to you. Yeah, I mean, I've always said um, I have – I mean, I do use crawling patterns um, and some stuff on the ground. Um, so we would probably disagree there. But I think where we do agree is I've always said that exercise and movements are basically just tools in a toolbox. And if that specific exercise is going to f- – help fix a problem or get an athlete to where I need to get them to, then I plug it in. It's not like every athlete that comes to my facility has to crawl this way before they could do X. Um, and I see, I think I see that a lot. Um, and I see it as one of the issues is a lot of people get kind of stuck down with what you're using as fads or certain exercises. And an athlete has to do this in order to do this in order to do this or the, you know, back to the baby analogy, like they got to be able to move, in this certain pattern in order to squat. And it's like, no, they don't. But if I could get them to do certain things that will allow for better outcomes down the road, then I'm just going to plug that tool and use that tool. And again, I I think that, you know, I don't use a ton of Olympic lifting, but, but every once in a while I do. And I believe that if, if a coach is utilizing it and their athletes are getting better and nobody's getting hurt, then they're doing their job. And again, it, that, that just ends up being one of those things where it's like, it's not a good use of our time because I don't think what's plaguing most athletes is certain weight room exercises. I think a lack of understanding global load management, a lack of understand, understanding how to structure practices and speed work, that stuff to me would be more important than us talking about, you know, what kind of, of squat that athlete is doing to change gears a little bit. And I saw you mention this, that you don't like the cue of chest up during certain exercises, especially a squat. Talk to us a little bit about that and how you cue that or why you don't like that specific cue. Yeah, I, I think, um, 
I don't know who just, I think it was Dan Path that said that cues are like shirts or dirty shirts and you use them, but then every once in a while you got to throw them out. Um, and so I think you use certain cues in very specific situations. I think that chest up became one of those cues where they just blindly told everybody that. And I think a lot of times you'll lose that stacked position in the squat if somebody is just thinking, I got to get my, my chest up and get my head up, um, and they start to hyperextend a little bit. And so they can disrupt what you might want to see in a squat pattern. And it might work for some people. Um, I, tend, I tend to think that it, it causes some people, like I said, to lose that, that brace and that stack positioning of the abs and the pelvis and the, um, the lats, all that that I'm looking for. I've seen chest up kind of be an issue in that regard. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, uh, one of the biggest things I try to do is to stop coaching (laughs) is to basically stop talking as much as I can during sessions. Um, and I mean, I I think cueing is just a very individualized thing and, you know, you might be able to say chest up to someone and they could do it. They understand what you're saying. It looks better, but you ought to understand the individual. And I don't think that, cues can technically just be say oh for the squat these are the five cues that everybody should use because we're all different individuals and how we perceive what you're saying is going to be different for all three of us if I told you something you'd probably take it different than Lucas and and me Um, so I think you just got to understand the individual and you know I I think the people that are these are the five cues to use for a squat it's it's kind of like that might not work for the kid that's in front of you and he might look completely terrible with that you know cue that you use you know what I've learned too is (coughs) not coaching is oftentimes one of the best things to do because you can allow the athlete to learn. And so I think there's a lot of value in motor learning of not trying to coach every bad rep or over cue or over talk or over speak, which I think a lot of young and and new coaches could do, Um, especially with youth athletes. Like if, if that's the main, you know, population of the athletes that I work with, let them make mistakes and just guide them along the way. I think oftentimes it's easy to try to seem more important than you are by always coaching and always talking. And I think it's a tendency that some people have. And I think learning and growing as a coach, you learn what to not say and use your words strategically. And, and I think that could be a valuable tool. Um, And like to your point about parents not being in the facility, they want to always immediately coach if they are around Every single time they make a mistake, it's like the parent is, is jumping in. The parent is jumping in. The parent is always trying to correct. And then the athlete then gets frustrated. And so it's like a cycle of non-learning. And so it's a frustration for the athlete. So I think that's a big takeaway, at least for me, is what I've learned is to learn when to not speak and to learn when to not coach and use my voice strategically. You know, obviously when somebody's doing something egregious, then you need to step in and coach them and talk to them. But I think more often than not, not coaching can sometimes be the best coaching, um, if that makes sense. And just putting them in an environment where they can learn, especially with movement. Now, exercises, obviously, you need to coach them and teach them how to do it. But with movement and sprinting and running and cutting and, and agility and things like that, just putting them in the right environment, I think, sometimes has enough value in its own outside of me as a coach. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I definitely cue a lot less and, and try to talk a lot less than I did in the past. Um, and I think that's just from understanding more about the brain and how the brain le- learns, um, you know, because all movement originates in the brain. And I think that we have to understand that if somebody's moving a specific way, that there's a reason for that. And, uh, you know, oftentimes by just throwing a million things at them, we're going to create awkward and stiff and like Charlie used to say, paralysis by analysis kind of movement. And so, you know, that's where you would try to hide the skill in the drill um, or, or really just, you know, work on whatever you believe is holding them back and causing them to adopt whatever strategy it is that they're doing. Um, you know, like I'm not somebody that uses a ton of um, like, change of direction and like right now I would say agility drills are like kind of hot and they're pretty big on social media and there's courses you know about um you know changing 
changing people's form when they're doing it, this, this, and that. Um, and, and at one of my last seminars, somebody kind of asked me about it because they had just taken one of those seminars. Um, and basically what I said was that, you know, there are underlying um, reactive and strength qualities that need to be there in order for somebody to have these quote unquote optimal patterns that you're looking for. You know, like if we look at a young athlete, young athlete struggles to maintain horizontal projection in acceleration, mainly because they just aren't strong enough. Um, there's no amount of cueing that's going to fix that, right? It's like there's, there's some underpinning there. There are some biomotor abilities that we need to develop that are going to allow them to express that movement more efficiently. And so that would just be another example where it's like you can spend all the time in the world trying to improve how somebody cuts, right? But if they don't have good eccentric rate of force development, if they don't have good strength, if they don't have all of the necessary um, biomechanical and, um, and kinematic uh, underpinnings that they need, then it's, it's all for nothing. It's like you're teaching them something, but there's a reason that their brain and their body is performing it the way that they're performing it. And so just by telling them to do this, that's not going to fix it. That's not enough. So um, now I'm not saying that those drills don't have any place in a program. I'm just saying, and I tend to, again, agree with Charlie here, where it's like, well, if we sprint and we jump and we run and we throw and we lift, then there's a really good chance that the athlete is going to be able to accelerate and decelerate. Um, and, you know, I would ask people all the time, you know, how did, how did Michael Jordan ever play without all of the change of direction experts that, that we have going today that he didn't have back then? Um, you know, at the end of the day, like certain athletes have it and certain athletes don't, but, um, it doesn't need to be as fancy as people are trying to make it out to be. I really think that if you hammer those things that I talked about, that you are going to be able to move pretty well on the field. I, I want to talk to you also about posture. Um, and, and you're critical of these guys who are big posture guys or quote-unquote movement specialists, and they call themselves like corrective exercise specialists. I, I think you, you use that term um, as you would call them. And I want to reference, and I'll put this on the screen, that, that picture that you posted, Michael Phelps and Michael Johnson, and they're totally different postures in their, when they're doing their sport. Can you expand on this a little bit? Yeah, now this, this post got so many people angry. Like, so I got the, the – yeah. um, the people that consider themselves corrective exercise specialists upset, and then people that want to nitpick every fucking thing that I say on social media as if every post is a thesis. But, yes, these are static photos of these individuals, 100%. And, yes, posture is not static. It's dynamic. However, the picture of Phelps I took from a physical therapy website where they used that photo to describe that he had upper cross syndrome, how it was absolutely going to lead to shoulder pain and how they could fix that and thus make him a better athlete. So that's where I pulled that image from. It wasn't me just trying to capture him standing slouching. Um, the other one of Johnson running, I, I, he, if somebody were to run today like that, you know, and, and I'm going to make another point here about sprinting. Um, the average person today would tell him that he's doing it wrong. He's obviously extending at the back, right? He's, he's kind of leaning backwards. That would go against what we would tell every athlete to do. Now, there's, there's a couple things to consider. Number one, there are adaptations to all sports. So, yes, swimmers are, are going to adapt to their sport and are going to take on certain posture. Um, in terms of running, I think that the, the emphasis on sprinting right now is awesome. At the same time, I think that a lot of coaches are going too deep, that they're doing too much, they're worried too much about mechanics, and they're losing sight of the fact that at the end of the day, even though sprinting is a part of a lot of sports, it is still not the competitive event minus for a track and field athlete. And so while I do believe that good mechanics can make you more efficient and can potentially help you run faster, 
we do have to remember that we are we are also using it to develop a lot of just general qualities. We're using it because it's possibly the best plyometric exercise, because it um, builds resilience in the hamstrings, because it is going to help you get stronger. It's also going to develop your overall fitness, um, increase your speed. Yes, those things are great, but we can't lose we can't lose forest um, or lose sight of the forest for the trees here because that's not their main sport. So we don't need to go all down the line trying to, to interpret every single thing that they're doing speed-wise because it's taking time away from their sport. They have to maximize their sport. They have enough shit to worry about in terms of technical and tactical ability. Um, so, but, but that I got off track there. Um, th- this, this post to me, what I was trying to say was that every, every single person is going to move in their own way. The human body is asymmetrical. It's never going to be perfectly symmetrical. Um, We will adapt to loads that are placed on our body and our posture. Um, And there is no perfect posture. There has been zero research that shows us that there is one agreed upon standard on how posture should look. Um, There is zero research that suggests that corrective exercises fix any kind of dysfunction that these people are talking about. And there's a ton of research that shows that posture and pain are very poorly correlated. So by telling people that they're dysfunctional, that they need to be fixed, that we're going to use these special exercises and it's going to fix them, it's misleading and it is not supported by any kind of evidence right now. Now, I think when I I saw your post, my first thought was these are like the 0.5% of the population. And to think that, you know, when you're talking through the Michael Phelps in a, you know, a, a clinic or whatever is talking about that, it's, you know, a lot of positions that Michael Jordan got into, a lot of positions that uh, Bear Sanders got into. If you look at these, like, top-level guys, a lot of those people would say they're dangerous or bad positions. But those are – they're probably the 0.5% of those sports because they could get into those positions and move that way. And so by saying that if you fix this or show them proper, you know, cutting angles or whatever, you might mess them up. And you might, you know, put him in a different position and you're not going to make Michael Phelps any better than what he was. <laughs> yeah, and there were a lot of people commenting, again, with this notion that, well, if we were to fix either of those guys in that picture, that they would be better. And that, you know, that, that's my issue there. It's like there's, there's a reason that they, that they look that way. There's a reason that they move that way. Um, it could be the reason that they're good. We could make them worse by interfering. And... Um, you know, I forget the name of a girl who runs, I think she either runs the 200 or the 400, and I think she competed at Kentucky, but her arm action was, like, all over the place, like, completely um, not what we would teach people. And I remember I made a post about it, and I was like, you know, how many of you coaches would try to step in here and change her arm action, and yet she's kicking everybody's ass out here? And so, again, it ties back to, like, the fragility of our knowledge. And I'm not saying that the way that she was using her arms is the right way. But for her, it obviously was the right way. She was competing at a very high level, and she was first in all these races. Um, So that's just an example where we sometimes have to step back and not just impart all of the wisdom that we believe that we have and all the ideas that we believe that we have and just watch the athlete move and see if we need to adjust anything, see if it needs any intervention. I would say a lot of time, it probably doesn't. But that's not going to sell programs, and that's not going to sell social media and, and all this kind of stuff. So, so that's where you see people try to get in here and invent these systems. So I think this is a really interesting discussion because, you know, what would you say to a top athlete who comes to you and says, I do want to get better. What can I do to get better? Because I, would you agree that there is certain things that athletes can do to, to get better? But it's a fine line because their skill is so refined, like in a sport like golf or a quarterback throwing a football, right? I mean, those skills are very, very specific. So I agree that you do need to be careful with trying to, quote, unquote, fix an athlete. However, if an athlete does want to get better, I mean – what would you do in that situation or how would you train them? If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I guess it would depend on what, what they're trying to get better at. 
Um, you know, so like, give, give me an example of what they might be asking to improve, or just, they're just looking just to be better overall. Yeah, I mean, let's just use sprinting, for example, right? So a sprinter um, is, is already at a certain level, and he wants to get better. I mean, pretty basic example. I know, I know it's, it's con, you know, contextual to the actual athlete, but just in general, do you have any thoughts on, on that, say, for sprinting example? You know, so, so again, it would, it would also just depend on their level, right? So if this was like a, a pro sprinter, that's, some, that's somebody then that I would either refer out or I would have discussions with people whose opinion I value. And um, I, I would look a little bit deeper into if we believe that their form or whatever is happening is detracting in terms of per- performance. Um, but I, I probably wouldn't start there uh, because I think I think that's like that, that's where everybody would start. I, I would rather start with okay, what's your programming look like? What does your sleep look like? What's your recovery look like? Um, you know, to me, those are the things that most athletes aren't paying enough attention to. Like they all want to do their sports skill practice and they want to work out, but they don't pay a ton of attention to load management, sleep nutrition, um, readiness, all that stuff they just think is kind of like, you know, um, you know, to the side. So I would, I would need to, I would need to see the athlete, I guess. And I would also need to see like, okay, is their form, are they getting hurt frequently? Um, you know, is it, does it look like something that's really detracting from their performance, but if they're already at a high level, um, that, that may not be it. So, you know, I would say that's a really difficult question and I would have to take it specific to every single person that comes in the door. Um, because I think there would be some times where I may not, I may not want to touch any of their specific skill practice. Um, and like I said, so for a, a pro sprinter, I may not want to touch that because I could get in their head. And that's all they do is sprint. Um, the, one of the main reasons that I love working with track and field athletes is because it's really easy to tell if I did my job. It's like you either got faster or you didn't. You know, where it's like a, a team sport athlete, there's a whole team out there. We could do really stupid shit. Your team could win. You could still play well. Like, it's kind of hard to gauge, but, but it's really cut and dry in track and field. And that's why I love the coaches in track and field so much because it's like, yeah, I think a lot of people would say that sometimes they get a little hokey, they get a little holistic, they get a little too um, intricate and in depth with certain things. And I would agree they probably do, but their sport is so, so specific that it's like, they're trying to, they're trying to understand every single aspect of that athlete that they can, because they're working to try and get one-tenth of a second better. And it's like, if they didn't, then something went wrong. And that's going to fall, obviously, on, on the athlete and the coach. So um, I, I think that's a difficult question. Um, and I don't, have a, I don't have a specific answer for it. You know, and that's why, and I liked your point earlier about staying general and being more of a generalist in that sense. But also, if, when you're working with an elite athlete, it's totally different than a developing athlete because when you're working with an elite athlete, you have to think about and have a team of people working with them, including their sport coach and all these other people, so it's not so cut and dry because they are an elite athlete. So with a developing athlete, I think it's a little bit easier to make you know bigger, quote-unquote, decisions about what they're doing with their training regimen. Um, but I think your point about recovery and sleep and nutrition and all that it's cliche to say that, but it's so true because a lot, oftentimes it's overlooked. So, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. So with an athlete listening to this, they need to take that more seriously. Um, but, you know, on a different, I guess this is on the same level, and, and people always want to talk about this on TikTok and Twitter and stuff, but LeBron James, that would be an example where, you know, his training may not, you know, reflect um, – you know, his level of play or his elite ability. Um, and Jared could touch on this too, you know, working with uh, players in the NBA. But um, talk about that a little bit and how, you know, training an elite player like that may or may not be the reason he's successful. 
it would never be the reason that I played basketball. Um, you know, that that was something that I had to learn. Like the very my very first exposure to strength conditioning was with Buddy Morris at University of Pittsburgh with their football team. Um, I'm not going to name the player at the time, but he was unbelievable player. Had an incredible uh, career in the NFL. Uh, won one or two Super Bowls, but. He was the laziest fucker I've ever seen in the weight room. Didn't ever want to do shit. Um, he just had it. He, he just had it. He was naturally gifted. There's the, the majority of those guys are kind of like that. Um, what Buddy used to tell me was, you know, the hardest thing that I do, especially now that he's in the NFL, is turn on the lights and to not screw anything up. Um, you know, because these guys at the end of the day, it's like, are they going to be available to be on the field or not? That That's most important. That's number one. They're all elite level athletes. They can all play. Um, there's endless amounts of stories of guys like Allen Iverson absolutely refused to lift weights. One of the greatest players of all time. Um, there were guys that came in. I worked training camp at the Cardinals one year. There were guys that came in that did uh, walking lunges with one chain, 20 pounds on. They did probably eight, 10 reps each leg. He went and threw up in the garbage. He was so out of shape. Um, but that year went on and caught, caught probably like eight, 10 touchdowns for over a thousand yards. Um, so it would definitely be an error to look at the way those guys train and try to emulate that, especially for a young athlete. Uh, LeBron James was dunking in high school and I don't even know what kind of training he was doing then, but even in high school, he was a better athlete than 99.9% of people in the world. Um, and so, you know, I, I, the only issue I have with them putting out the videos of the stuff that he's doing like that is that without a lot of context and without, you know, some more perspective, young athletes are going to think that that's the best way to train. And it, it violates a lot of what we know about just giving them a solid foundation and the things that have highest transfer to the sporting uh, activity or the things that are going to deliver kind of the, the highest yield at the lowest cost. So um, I don't agree with it, but I would also say the same thing I said earlier, which is if LeBron likes it and it makes him feel better and it's allowing him to play at a high level, more power to you. But just be cautious about who you're putting it in front of because young athletes and even other pro athletes they don't really have good bullshit detection. This is not their field. This is not their, their expertise. And so they don't know how to look at different training methods and know whether or not it's a good method. Um, a lot of times those guys will just go somewhere that's free and people will be like, Hey, if you let me put you on social media, I won't charge you. Okay. I'll train there. Or they'll go train somewhere just cause it's close to where they live or cause they know somebody else that works out there. Like they don't know how to vet really good training from just, what's free, what's cheap, what's available. Yeah, and I mean, I think the biggest thing with LeBron, I just had a discussion this morning with an athlete, um, is people don't see what you talk, touched on a second ago, sleep, recovery, hydration, nutrition. Like, I've, I've seen, I've witnessed LeBron go through some of his stuff he does and the, the balance that he has on recovery, and he started that um, at a young age. Um, you know, he, he hired on a, you know, on a podcast I listened with him, like he hired Mike Mencius, I think his like second or third year in the NBA. So they've been with each other for 18 years. Everything that they do is down to a, like a, a T for LeBron and how it makes him feel and be able to perform for 20 years. Um, one of the things I talk about a lot with, you know, his younger NBA guys is, is try to do that. Try to invest in yourself early into someone that actually truly cares about you and finds what works for you, whether you're, not everyone's going to be LeBron James. But a lot of these guys that I've worked with are later in their career, and most of the time once we get starting working, they're like, man, I wish I had you when I was younger. <laughs> it's like you're 12 years in, 13 years in. It's hard to fix all your dysfunction. You've had surgeries. You've had injuries. Um, now we're just trying to get you, you know, like you said, available. Um, so I think a lot of people just see, Le like what you said, is they see LeBron training that way, and they're like, I need to train that way. But if you told them everything else he did, they'd be like, I don't want to do that. That's a lot of work. And, you know, now the recipe is not going to work for you. Yeah, I mean, those are, you know, my last seminar, I talked about the big rocks of training and of just coaching in general. And uh, for me, it's like I, I, I think that sleep is so underrated. I think that I just I don't I don't think that I could focus on it enough 
with people. And I don't think that we talk to our athletes enough about it. Um, and, and again, it's just, it's not a, it's not a sexy topic, right? So nobody's going to, nobody's going to really be that interested in it. But um, a little bit about, you know, what I was talking about was like, when we look at sleep, number one, it's the most anabolic thing that we could prescribe. Number one, the most anabolic thing, and it's fucking free. Um, we also know that like a lack of sleep, right, is going to lead to potentially increased risk of injury. It's, there's going to be some immune system impairment, so you might be more likely to get sick. Um, but we also know that lack of sleep can actually amplify pain-sensing regions in the body. So not only does it lead to a higher risk of injury, but you might actually feel more pain if, if you're sleeping less. And if you feel more pain, you're not going to move as well. If you don't move as well, you're at risk of injury again. Um, and then we also know that people that have low levels of sleep, um, they're going to seek out high energy foods. And that's just because the body senses that it's tired, that it's fatigued. And so it's going to often make bad food choices. And so it's like, if your sleep isn't there, hell, a lot of what I do with you in the gym doesn't even matter. So it's like, we'll talk about your kinogram and your acceleration and your, I'm tracking your velocity and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, if you're not sleeping well at night and you're not, you're not recovering from what we're doing, then it almost doesn't even matter what I'm doing with you. I might actually even be making things worse. Right. Totally agreed. Um, and if you don't have any to add on that, maybe one more question before we let you go. Um, and you touched on this a little bit, and I thought it was fascinating. The, the difference in how you coach, or this is a problem in coaching speed and acceleration for team sport versus track and field. And the principles of acceleration are different um, you know, in, excel, in, in track and field, especially short sprints and team sport sprints. What is the difference, and how do you coach those differences? Um, and do you see this as kind of a problem in, in what current coaches maybe are doing? In terms of, you know, gradual rise and staying patient, acceleration, and other things. Yeah, so, again, I love the, the emphasis on speed and, and sprinting. I do think that there are some people that are taking the mechanics too far with team sport athletes, and I absolutely was guilty of this a couple of years ago because I spent a lot of time trying to teach mechanics to people who have their own sport to worry about. Um, the 100-meter is a completely different race than team sports or even running the 40. As I talked about the other day, um, Dr. Ken Clark showed that um, most of the people that were running the 40-yard dash were hitting max velocity around, I think, 30 yards, um, which if you did that in a 100-meter race, you would get your ass kicked. Um, I often talk about how Usain Bolt was accelerating into 60, 70 meters, and so when we look at his world record, he decelerated the least. And so when, when they're coaching a track athlete, track coaches want them to have that strong, full extension. They want them to push and, and have more of a gradual kind of rise into their max velocity and mechanics. And that makes sense because they have to, um, they have to be able to maintain their top speed a little bit longer than obviously somebody running a 40. Um, and you can only maintain max velocity speed for so long. So there's, there's a pacing uh, element to it and just an uh, energy distribution element that a track athlete has to consider that a field sport athlete doesn't. Also, most field sport athletes, again, like, okay, if we look at soccer, they may not be running much past 25 meters in a straight line. That doesn't mean it never happens, but that would kind of be like the average. Um, most NFL players, right, they're not running, you know, super deep routes every single play. And so for a lot of those athletes, they're going to want to reach top speed sooner, and that's going to lead to them pushing a little bit more vertical sooner. So we don't want to get too, too deep into trying to teach them the gradual, you know, smooth rise of acceleration that track coaches teach because that's not our athlete's main sport. Um and when you when you look at the when you look at a sprint, for example, Charlie Francis has a really cool graph um, where he talks about you know the first ten first ten yards, the first ten meters are primarily like strength based, and so that's why somebody that's very strong 
can keep up with somebody 10 yards, 15 yards, whatever. Um, the next, that 10 to 20, he says, is more about power. Um, after that, that 20 to 30 is power speed. And then from, I think it's 30 to like 60, 30 to 70, that's speed. That's where that elasticity comes into play. Um, I think it's valuable for an athlete, again, to train all along that spectrum. But in terms of like the strategies that they use to get there, I, I think that we do have to remember that it's not going to look the same for a track athlete as it will for a, for a field sport athlete. And so, yeah, I might be coaching some of those things that are like kind of general in nature, but I'm not going to hammer it too much because I know that it doesn't need to be as specific. Right. And I agree. And we just had a podcast with Max Schmarzo and he was saying, you know, in basketball, you know, acceleration and speed where you hear coaches say, hey, knees up, knees up, get your knees up as high as you can. That actually might be a worse strategy for acceleration on the basketball court, especially in those very short um, spaces that they have to be fast on their first step. And so driving your knee up really high may make you slower because then your foot is further away from the ground and you need to be on the ground to move. So um, I would agree that, you know, the acceleration principles of track and field may not be the most quote unquote optimal for team sport athletes, especially sports like basketball. Um, what's your take on that? Um, yeah. I mean, again, that, that goes back to my earlier point, which is that I think we need to remember that, we're using acceleration and sprinting very similar to how we might use a squat, that it is still more general than it is specific. And so if I'm prescribing it, it's not because I'm trying to make you an elite level runner. It's because I believe that it's going to develop the biomotor abilities that will allow you to play your sport. Um, and so you would then have to look at each sport through its own unique lens. Um, and again, that's, that's where I would be more concerned with, okay, what was our volume of speed work that week? What was the intensity and, and is it improving? That to me would be more important than the, you know, how long are you staying horizontal or how vertical are you or how high is your knee drive? And like, I get looking at all that stuff and I think it's cool. And I think it might help you direct the training process a little bit. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not in love with it as much as other people. And I've, and I pulled back from it a little bit just because again, I'm, I'm stepping back and I'm recognizing why I'm using these things in the first place. And it's not just to give you great form because once they step on the court or on the field, they are going to run the way they always run. They've been doing it for 20 years, for 21 years, 22 years, whatever it is. So when I'm using it in training, again, it's because I'm trying to drive a specific adaptation, not necessarily change their sporting form. Because once they step out there, in terms of a psychological standpoint and the emotional stimuli and um, you know being able to perceive the opponent and having fans and having teammates and coaches, the environment is completely different. And people learn very environment-specific. So the chance that they're going to step out there and remember every single thing we did in practice and then implement it is absolutely crazy to assume they're, they're very likely going to run how they've always run. But if I raise their overall speed, if I raise their overall fitness, if I improve their strength and their power, and I've given them some confidence, then I believe they'll be able to perform their competitive event at a higher level. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I 100% agree with that. I think we've touched on, you know, that, that point a decent amount today. And I think that's, you know, I think, I think what you said is true is that I think everyone should sprint, but I don't think, you know, everyone needs to, you know, train technically in a sense like a track athlete because they do have to play their sport. And at the end of the day, the skill of their sport is, you know, what's going to get them paid or is going to get them, keep them on the, on the uh, court field, whatever it is. But it, we all know the sprinting is, you know, very, very important. Um, I had a, quick little pivot um and i i love your instagram because you're so blunt and upfront. and i've been dealing with this with a, a team that i work with um and i put it on my twitter um so a little case study that i'm trying to kind of work through and i'd love to get just your intake on it is 
the team practices on grass. The club pays for that grass. So the club president only allows the players to practice in turfs. No cleats, ever. They play all their games in cleats. They've had, over the last five years, based on, you know, their remembrance, I haven't looked at the actual data yet, I'm trying to get it, they've had three or four ACLs in practice, and just last month they had seven ACLs in-game. And one of my arguments was, you know, I believe by practicing in turfs on grass – at night, we're not training the demands of the sport. Now, when they do go to the sport with cleats, we're leading them into, you know, failure in a sense. What are your take on that? And I would love if, you know, whatever you think. Okay. Um, so so we, I didn't really get to give my opinion on, like, injuries. But just real quick, if you, if you have the time. Um, the human body is a complex system, obviously, as you guys know. And so in order for us to, to work with people, we have to know that um, it's the dynamic nature of all of the parts together. And so in a complex system, it's impossible for us to know all of the parts at one time. And it's also impossible for us to try to take a single factor within a complex system and make some kind of um, determination about it. Um, Often what people would say is that in complex systems, the most important aspects are the things that you can't see. Okay. And so this is what I would say is one of the fun laws of um, all the data and the tech that we're using today. And we're using this as evidence because what ends up happening is we optimize and overvalue the things that we see and that we measure. But again, what, What's most important is what's lurking behind what we actually can't see. And so this then creates these like risk asymmetries in what we don't see. Um, and and I, I tend to view injuries in the same thing where it's like we, we try to locate a couple different things that we believe might be leading to the injury. Um, but it's really difficult to do that. Um, right. and, and I think it's like, you know, I think it was Derek Hansen that showed I don't know if it was last year or the year before that there was the same amount of ACL tears in the NFL on grass as there was turf. Yes, now, I saw that. Right. So that would go again. Like a lot of the players are saying the turf is, is causing this and that. And, and, and then he puts that up. Right. And it makes us question what we think or what we see. Um, you know, so I, so I have a really hard time when people, Whenever people try to talk to me about an injury or injuries, um, I always just tell them that, that there could be a million reasons why it happened, right? Um, and for me to try to pinpoint, like, one or two things, I would be doing a disservice to the complexity of the human body. And, uh, you, you know, there's just there's, – there's so much that we would have – that I would have to know – about the team, about their days off, about the players. Um, and sometimes I would even say, like, and people never want to hear this, but, like, sometimes injuries are just bad luck. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, so, sometimes shit happens. It's like a fucking car accident. Like, like, no matter what you do, there's other people on the road, right? And so sometimes they hit you. Sometimes they move, and it causes you to move. Um, you know, so I would look at that. But I would never assume that that's, that that's the main issue because I, I, I feel like I really understand how everything bleeds into one another in terms of the human body. Um, and a really good analysis or, or um, a, a good analogy of it is just like kind of like the stock market where it's like um, single factor thinking there is not going to help you very much. Um, because there are so many things that affect it, it's very, very difficult to predict. And that's why no system has accurately been able to predict and prevent injuries thus far. Not the FMS, like you name it, no matter what, even some of the, the screens that we might use for ACL, now there's research that suggests that like the drop, the drop test, the drop jump may not be um, a very good test for ACL injuries. Um, 
because there's just there's there's so many factors in play here. So I, I would just say that um, I wouldn't have enough information to understand really why that's occurring. Um, could that be a factor? A, a thousand percent. Could it also be the coach is doesn't understand um, high low programming? You know, like if if all the intense, if all the efforts are intense all the time, um, you know what most coaches don't understand is that after you train, you get worse. You don't get better. And that, that would be the same thing with, with a high intense practice. And if you train really hard and you get worse, and then you train really hard and you get worse again, what ends up happening is you're just fighting to maintain homeostasis up here. We're just trying to get you back to baseline. Whereas training is about raising overall preparedness and allowing you to super compensate at some point. But if I just keep blasting you with high intense efforts and you're not able to recover, then shit's going to happen. And then we're going to start like, again, looking at all this data that we have. And like I said, sometimes I think we have too much data because we overanalyzed it. And um, that's, that's what the black swan was about. When he talks about nine 11, he's like after nine 11 and nine 11 was a black swan event. Nobody saw it coming. It had a huge impact and it's, easy to rationalize after the fact but everything is easy to rationalize after the fact the reason that it happened it was because nobody saw it coming after it happened it's like well let's put metal detectors in airports and we're going to put more security guards and we're going to put guys on planes and it's like well you have to understand that in the future that won't be the avenue that they go because you already know about that so again, it goes back to the most important thing is what we don't know and what we don't see. And so that, that's what I would say about injuries. I would say, you know, I completely agree with everything you said. Um, but in this specific case, I, I do think that, that this specific factor that we described could be a contributing factor more than others, you know. Um, it's, but like you said, it's hard to say. The human body is so complex, you know. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, again, it absolutely could, and, and if they continue to show high rates of injury w w with that regard, and, and uh, I think you would have to consider it. But I, um, I just would say that I don't have enough data and knowledge of that specific scenario to try to make any kind of determination on it. Right. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Coach, for taking the time. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing your wisdom. So can you share your Instagram or any of your social media so people can go find you? Yeah. Um, Instagram is just Fred underscore Duncan. My Twitter might be the same – or not Twitter. Uh, my TikTok is probably the same. Um, and, yeah, Facebook, just Fred Duncan. Cool. Well, awesome. Uh, we can't wait to put this out, and thanks for taking the time. Mm -hmm.